Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And I think if you ask most Americans, uh, they would tell you that the First Amendment to the Constitution protects the freedom of speech so that if someone is engaged in truthful, non-misleading speech, there's nothing the government can do uh, to prevent you uh, from speaking. It, the First Amendment exists to protect the free flow of ideas uh, because uh, it, we all have a fundamental right to free speech. And even if speech uh, is harmful, censorship of speech ends up causing even greater harms than it might prevent. So I think if you also ask most Americans, they would assume there's absolutely no connection between the government regulating something like uh, the safety and efficacy of drugs and medical devices and freedom of speech. They would never assume that regulation, that, that, that sort of uh, safety regulation, might somehow take the government uh, into the realm of uh, regulating uh, or prohibiting truthful and non-misleading speech. And yet, this happens all too often uh, when the Federal Food and Drug Administration uh, regulates the safety and efficacy of both drugs and medical devices. Not only does the FDA prohibit uh, manufacturers of drugs and medical devices from marketing drugs and medical devices that have not yet uh, be, received the FDA seal of approval, that have not yet met the FDA's uh, uh, standard of uh, standards for safety and efficacy, but uh, the FDA also prohibits those ma manufacturers of those products from marketing those or, or from from engaging in uh, speech about those uh, about uses of those products that the FDA has not yet approved. When the FDA approves a drug or a medical device, it approves that drug or medical device for an indication or certain indications for certain uses. But there's nothing in federal law that, prohib that uh, prohibits uh, uh, doctors from using those products for indications that are not on the FDA-approved label. So, and this is actually common practice. Uh, physicians uh, are uh, every day writing prescriptions for uh, drugs uh, for purposes that are uh, different from uh, those uh, that the FDA has approved, either different dosages or different uses for the drugs entirely, and this is all perfectly legal. However, uh, the FDA prohibits pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, from telling physicians about uh, uh, new uses of their products, um, uh, even if that information is truthful and non-misleading, which is uh, why we're here today. Um, we're here today to hear from three experts about uh, the costs that this policy uh, of uh, the federal government imposes. Uh, the first, our first speaker is someone who has lived through uh, 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 th this sort of regulation of speech firsthand. His name is Howard Root. He started his career as a corporate lawyer, but soon turned an entrepreneur. Uh, he founded the Minnesota medical device company Vascular Solutions in 1997, ran it for 20 years. Uh, where they invented and launched over 100 new cardiovascular devices and created over 650 jobs along the way. He sold uh, vascular solutions uh, uh, in uh, February 2017, so that is one year ago today, and uh, uh, also faced federal criminal prosecution over the words spoken by, spoken by a few of the company's salespeople about an FDA-cleared medical device that uh, that constituted a very small share of the company's 
sales and never harmed a single patient, yet ran afoul of the FDA's prohibition on uh, off-label commercial speech. Uh, following Howard, we're going to hear from Professor uh, Jessica Flanagan of the uh, University of Richmond, where she is a, uh, an assistant professor in, of leadership studies, philosophy, politics, economics, and law, who has it's a, it's a mouthful. Who has uh, who who specializes in um, in these issues? Her latest book, Pharmaceutical Freedom: Why Patients Have a Right to Self-Medicate, was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. And finally, we're going to hear from Christina Sandifer, Sandifer, who's the executive vice president of the Goldwater Institute, um, uh, a uh, libertarian conservative think tank uh, in Arizona that uh, has won important victories for. Uh, free speech, property rights, um, and, and, and other important issues. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Howard now. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, Michael. And, and thanks to the Cato Institute for allowing me to come out here and be part of this panel. Now, when we talk about something like off-label talk or off-label speech, quickly we can kind of get down into the details of the legal part, and we can miss the human part of this whole issue. And there's really two human parts of this issue. One is the impact on patients for not getting the information, truthful, non-misleading information about devices and drugs that can save their lives. And that I think Jessica and Christina will talk about. Uh, the second part that's not as obvious is what happens when we give the Department of Justice the power to criminalize truthful, non-misleading speech about a legal use of a product in a way that benefits patients. That's what I'm gonna talk about because that's what I call my cardiac arrest my five heart-stopping years as CEO on the Fed's hit list, and what can happen in America with these kind of nebulous, overreaching regulations. Now, that background, I started Vascular Solutions in 1997 around one idea. We created that idea into a product in 2000. It's called the Duet. It's used by interventional cardiologists. And then we started to diversify. And over the next seven years, we added three new products in 2003 and about 45 additional new products, where by 2009, we had 50 medical devices being sold worldwide. We were profitable and successful medical device company in Minneapolis. One of those medical devices was called the Verilase. And the Verilase is a treatment for varicose veins using laser energy. That was the sole product that was subject to my nightmare in my cardiac arrest. The versions of the Verilase, it's not just one version, it was nine or eight different versions, lengths of this product to treat different lengths of varicose veins. From 100 centimeters, which would go from the thigh all the way down to the ankle, to the shortest being five centimeters, uh, treating very short segments of varicose veins. This whole issue, in my case, was around just one of these versions of just one of our products, the 10 centimeter version called the short kit. Now, we were a medical device company. We knew the FDA regulations and the law very well. The legal requirement for on-label use of a medical device is that you must have an intended use, which is provided to the FDA, that provides a, quote, general description of the disease the device will treat. That's very easy to comply with, varicose veins. But the FDA also has non-binding guidance, not binding on the FDA or on the companies, that has a flow chart if you want to make changes to your labeling. This flow chart asks you, does the change you want to make affect the indications for use? If yes, in every case, they want you to file a new 510K with the FDA. Now, in medical device land, if the FDA says they want you to do something, we say, yes, sir, and we do it, even if it's not legally required. So for vascular solutions, for our Verilase product line, that one out of 50 product lines, we received our first FDA clearance in 2003 and added seven more FDA clearances over the next five years, eight in total. But that still won't get everything. 
The on-labeled indications in 2009 were these. Verilase is indicated for the treatment of varicose veins, that general description, which is what's required, and varicosity is associated with superficial reflux of the great saphenous vein, a more specific indication, which is what the FDA wanted, and for the treatment of incompetence and reflux of superficial veins in the lower extremity. Now, even with all that mouthful, it still wasn't everything a doctor could use the Verilase short kit product for. So we filed a ninth FDA application where we request a clarification of the indications through incorporation of short saphenous veins and perforator veins and tributary veins, being even more specific. And perforator is the one issue that got me caught up with the Department of Justice. You see, the FDA denied this ninth application saying that we needed clinical data to support it. That's the first time that had ever happened to us. In the eight previous, no clinical data was required. We couldn't figure out why, and in fact, we could figure out it after the trial was over. Because in this trial, we located the FDA reviewer who rejected that ninth application. His name is Randolph Copeland. We brought him down to San Antonio where we had the trial, and here's a picture of him meeting with our lawyer in the, in the uh, lunchroom of our hotel during our trial. We got him to sign this affidavit, and the affidavit said that he was hired at FDA one month before being assigned to review our ninth Verilay's 510K. He had never reviewed a 510K before. He had no medical knowledge whatsoever. His immediate prior job was at McDonald's, not the consulting company, McDonald's. He was a branch manager of a McDonald's in this area. That's what his experience was. In spite of that, he still decided to approve our filing because he believed, and the FDA laser expert who we consulted believed, that clinical data should not be required, but he was overruled by an FDA manager with no prior laser experience who wanted to see clinical data to support virtually every 510K. This is what can happen in any organization, including the federal government. Well, we got that rejection, so what did we do? Well, we gave sales reps instructions on how to promote the short kit. And in it, I wrote, do not indicate that the short kit is approved to treat perforator veins. The short kit is not specifically approved for treating perforators. That's clearly exactly what the FDA wanted us to say. That's going far beyond what the law required. It's giving them everything in a nice, bright line. And I know my sales reps complied with that because for the five years this product was on the market, total sales of the short kit was roughly $500,000, represented by that red square on this slide. Sales of all of our other products during those same years were $474 million, representing by the blue squares on this slide. That means the short kit made up 0.1% of our sales, two-thirds of my sales reps sold perfectly zero, and there was never an allegation of any patient harm for this product, the most insignificant product in our portfolio. But, and there's always a but in these cases, we had two rogue sales employees. Danny McGith was our sales rep in Utah. Kip Thino was his Western regional manager. They got together twice each year for a regional meeting. This one in April 2008 was in the Holiday Inn in Burbank, California. I submit to you that nothing good has ever happened in a Holiday Inn in Burbank, California. And nothing good happened this day. See, Danny's father was a physician treating varicose veins with laser energy an expert in treating perforator veins. And so Kip asked Danny to take two of his doctor dad's uh, documents and present it to the other people in this room. One was called treating perforators, or tips for treating perforator veins, and the other one, treating perforator veins an easier way. And these are the documents that the federal government believed evidenced a conspiracy of off-label promotion. Well, how'd they get those documents? There was another person in the room, our sales rep for Phoenix, DeSalle Bowie, who was disgruntled because he did not get promoted. Then he quit, he went bankrupt, 
he was going through a divorce, and he was actually suicidal, sorry to say. He went to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, DeSalle, we've got a strategy for you to make money. We're going to file this Quitam lawsuit in the Western District of Texas, alleging that there's been an action against the federal government where the government will recover treble damages and criminal penalties and, and civil penalties because of off-label promotion. They made up a $20 million fable to try to get 25% for the relator, which is the way these work. That started this whole process. Well, the question you might have, well, how does that turn into a criminal prosecution? That's a civil lawsuit. Well, I found out later by reading the Yates memo. Sally Yates left this behind as she left the Department of Justice, wrote it in September of 2015. In it, she said, if civil attorneys believe that an individual identified in the course of their corporate investigation should be subject to a criminal inquiry, that matter should promptly be referred to criminal prosecutors. So DeSalle's complaint was given to the prosecutors. The prosecutors looked at it, and they decided to go after vascular solutions. Well, why vascular solutions? We're just a little medical device company from Minnesota. Insignificant product. Why? Well, because we went to trial, the investigator, the FDA special agent, George Scabdis, who actually wears a gun, because guys like me are very dangerous when he tried to investigate us, was on the stand. And we asked him why he went after vascular solutions. And he said, that's one of the first things that we look for in my squad, is we're a small squad, and the cases that we want to invest our time and resources in are cases in which the conduct is top-down and wide-ranging. They were looking for a medical device company that had a nationwide sales force with a CEO who was still involved that they could go after. And they found that in vascular solutions. Well, then the Department of Justice used their tactics to try to build the case that wasn't there. They went after all of my employees to try to get them to testify the way they wanted. Those employees would never tell me what was going on because they don't come back to me saying what the federal government is threatening them with. But Beth Matthews was a regional manager in the Great Lakes region. And the day after the verdict, she sent me this email where she said, the prosecutor said to her, if you do not deliver us with the answers we want to hear today, it should be made known that we have the power to withhold rights and privileges provided to your natural born son. Now let that sink in. This case is about speech, truthful, non-misleading speech about a legal use of a medical device that never harmed a patient. And the prosecutors are threatening the children of my employees to get them to testify the way they want them to testify to convict me and my company. Well, what do they want Beth to say? Well, we found out about what they were doing because we had George Scabdis on the stand and we got to cross-examine him and asked him what were they trying to put words in the mouth of Beth Matthews to get her to repeat. One thing we asked him, another thing you did not write down in your interview memo was that the Department of Justice trial attorney Tim Finley actually read excerpts of grand jury testimony from other witnesses to Ms. Matthews. His answer, that's correct. Now, your understanding is that these grand jury transcripts are supposed to be secret. Isn't that right? Answer, that's correct. And then you talked about telling, recommending to Vascular Solutions that she be fired, right, if she didn't fix her testimony? Answer, that's correct. Now, if I had done that, I'd be in prison today for obstruction of justice. Disclosing secret grand jury transcripts and then telling someone to change their testimony under threat of being fired is a criminal action. Not only did George Scabdis not investigate that criminal action, he did not even write it down. Who was the target of this? Well, you can tell very clearly who's the target of the investigation when you read the jury instructions they proposed to be given to the jury, and actually were given to the jury in my case. In it, they say, the United States is not required to prove that defendant Root knew about or intended to commit the misbranding violations. Now let that sink in as well. 
This is a criminal action against me personally, where I did not do anything. I did not tell anyone to do anything. In fact, I told them to do the opposite. I did not intend them to do that action that they did, and I didn't even know they did it. And I can still be convicted of a crime and go to prison. Instead, the standard is, you must find beyond a reasonable doubt that by reason of his position in the corporation, he had the responsibility and authority either to prevent or promptly correct the violation, and that he failed to do so. I would testify under oath as CEO, I have the power and authority, responsibility and authority to prevent and correct every violation. So the only question is, did a salesperson say a wrong word about an off-label use of a medical device? If so, I go to prison. And if you've never managed salespeople, and I had 100 of them, think teenagers. They're really close. If 100 teenagers say the wrong word today, you go to prison tomorrow, you will not take that responsibility. And that's what happens when off-label promotion is considered to be a crime. Well, with that, they can get a ham sandwich indictment. Every healthcare CEO in America could be indicted today under this standard. I was indicted, and this is what my local newspaper said. The only newspaper I've only ever known in my entire life, MedTech CEO accused of conspiracy. Well, conspiracy. I mean, that's the word they use when they don't understand the charges. But it's bad enough that everyone thinks Howard Root felon for the next 18 months when you could go from indictment until you can clear your name at trial. And most defendants, like 99% of defendants, can't even get there. We were fortunate enough to be able to fight back against this and stay together as a public company under indictment to get all the way through to trial. And when we got there, the government's case blew apart. It was destroyed by their own evidence. They put on the stand Neil Ogden, the FDA branch chief, and we cross-examined him. We asked him what was, going to, what was going on with his indications for use. His answer, if the company wanted to say perforator veins, they could put it in their indication for use. And that would be a specific indication, correct? Answer, yes. And that's FDA, that's under FDA's guidance, correct? Answer, yes. It's FDA's guidance that says you should list specific indications you want, correct? Answer, yes. Okay, and the guidance is not the law, correct? Answer, correct. I remember sitting in the courtroom realizing I was being prosecuted for an inadvertent sales rep violation of a non-binding FDA guidance document. That's what happens when we give the Department of Justice this power. Well, we put George Scavdis, George Scavdis came on the stand and we asked him about this as well. We asked him, why did you get it so wrong in this whole case? Why were you so far removed from what the law actually required? We asked him, you didn't think it was important to actually put in front of the witness the words of what the FDA has actually cleared and walked through her understanding? His answer, when I'm interviewing these people, I'm not there to make the defense's arguments. Agent Scavdis, you're a federal law enforcement officer, isn't that right? Answer, I am. Your job is to find the truth and the whole truth, is it not? Answer, I'm a fact finder. Now there's a big difference between facts and truth. They're not interested in the truth, they're interested in the facts so they can convict a CEO on off-label promotion. The jury reacted to this very negatively for the prosecutors, very positively for us. In fact, we did not have to call a single witness to testify in our defense. We went right to closing arguments, to the jury deliberations, they came back, not guilty on all counts. After that, alternate juror number one, who sat through the whole trial, emailed me just one hour after the verdict with her reaction. I turned 52 years old yesterday, and in all my life, I have never feared the government. As a law-abiding, tax-contributing citizen, one should not have to fear our federal government. Unfortunately, I will never feel that way again. What the federal government did to you, your company, and your employees is nothing short of criminal. Well, what is a defendant's punishment when you go through this type of case? What is the human part of this? There's two parts. Number one is the process. 
We had to hire 121 lawyers at 14 law firms to defend everyone in this litigation. That's because the federal government brought over 50 of my employees and customers in to be interviewed, and we wanted them inside our tent, so we paid for all the defense costs. That means it cost us $25 million to fight this in legal expenses, and we spent five years as a criminal target disclosed as a public company. Well, that's bad enough, but if we had been convicted, the judge would have taken over and given a criminal sentence. For me personally, I would have gotten over 36 months in prison as a sentence, and 85% of that time would have to be served. I would be in prison today, absolutely, if I had been convicted of the most likely charge. The company would have been excluded from selling any of our medical devices to any U.S. hospital, which means companies shut down, products sold off at a garage sale, 650 employees lose their job, and I would be branded as a felon for life for words spoken by my sales rep. Well, what are the odds of that conviction? I won, how many people win these cases? I asked a former prosecutor here in DC, how many acquittals has Judge Lamberth had in the last 10 years? Wanna guess the answer? Zero. You're looking at the only guy to walk into his courtroom and come out completely innocent of all charges. No one makes it out clear. What happens to those who are less fortunate? Well, I know, because now since I've written my book, I get calls every month. I get emails. This email came last September, and I know it's a bad email when I look at the subject line, and it says, not sure where to turn. This one said, my best friend and employer is in the middle of the same type of fight. Everything he's ever worked for is in jeopardy. I can promise you that he has not done anything wrong. My contact information is below. And when I talk to them, I have to ask the first question, which is critically important, which sickens me. How much money do you have? And if they have less than a million dollars, I tell them to plead guilty because you cannot fight the federal government in law, in court, on a criminal charge for less than a million dollars. You're better off taking what they're giving you and getting back on your life as soon as you can. Only the fortunate, rich people in America can fight this kind of charge. My case is now over because I'm free. I sold my company for a billion dollars. I did very well, thank you. But now my case is my cause, and that's why I'm coming out here. Because there's a lot of people who go through this who can't talk about it. Either they're in the middle of it, or they're going through it, or they lose because they don't have the money to fight. And that's what we need to change. That's why I wrote the book, Cardiac Arrest, which is available on Amazon and Kindle and Audible. And that's why I appreciate the Cato Institute picking up this case and this cause and furthering justice to try to get this off-label speech to be not criminal. Thank you very much. clicking with this thing, how it goes. Oh yeah, great. Um, so hi, I'm Jess, and um, that was such a compelling story, and I wanna talk a little bit about the underlying moral considerations that bear on all sorts of stories like Howard's. Um, so the moral case for off-label marketing. I'm a bioethicist, so philosophy gets psyched. Uh, I'll just give you an overview of what my argument will be. I think that when approaching questions in bioethics, it's good to uh, approach them from a kind of pluralistic moral foundation. So we should consider, first off, people's rights, but also the consequences of a given policy, the political ethics. So like, for example, does the government actually have the authority to be enforcing these regulations and policies in the first place? The broader context as well as objections and what people are saying against this kind of a uh, policy reform, which is what I'm proposing. Um, so the first thing that we should look at, on my view, are the underlying moral foundations 
of people's speech rights, uh, both you know, legally and also just given the rights that people have in virtue of their personhood. And freedom of speech is justified uh, by an appeal to three different kinds of considerations. Speakers' rights, and that includes the rights of both manufacturers and their representatives, but also the rights of other health professionals who might also have an interest in speaking about drugs. Listeners' rights, so the rights of the audience, which include physician and caregivers, but could also include patients. So it's important to note that freedom of speech isn't just justified by an appeal to the general uh, rights of speakers alone. We as listeners also have an interest in freedom of speech. And to illustrate this point, consider, for example, if the government were to decide to censor 1984 by George Orwell, which would be an ironic choice. Uh, Orwell's dead. Orwell has like no interest in speaking. Like that's not um, a speaker. Uh, the speaker wouldn't be harmed by that kind of a censorship, but we would all be harmed by that kind of a censorship. My view is that prohibitions of off-label promotion are a kind of censorship of this sort. And it's censorship because it's a government restriction on lawful, uh, on speech that advocates in favor of lawful conduct. And so um, my first view would be on the speaker's based rights is that the moral argument in favor of off-label marketing is generally that manufacturers, companies, health professionals um, are commercial speakers, commercial speech legally is held to a lower standard of justification for protections and individual speech. Uh, and so people will think like, oh, but like manufacturers, like it's commercial speech, it's different. It's not like you're George Orwell. It's like you're some kind of a company. But I don't think that that double standard is justified. For example, we wouldn't expect, accept a policy that censored the New York Times and what they could say on their opinion and news pages, uh, even if on the grounds that the government disagreed with their message. If the message was advocating in favor of lawful conduct, it wouldn't be a justification for censorship to say like, oh, but look, the New York Times makes money off of that. And the New York Times has a uh, political interest in advocating for certain kinds of policies or a business interest in advocating for those policies. So I don't think that there should be double standards for individual speech and commercial speech in that way. Uh, moreover, the restrictions on off-label speech cause real harm to the speakers. So. Here's just one example, but between 2004 and 2010, for example, there were 21 off-label settlements, uh, and it was about $8 billion in criminal fines and settlements, in addition to criminal penalties, which people are subjected to. These types of speech restrictions that ban off-label promotion also limit what health workers can say when they're consulting for drug companies or speaking in industry events, which makes it so that health workers themselves can't bring valuable clinical knowledge to audiences who might be interested in a new drug. And that brings me to the point about listeners. So one reason that we wouldn't accept censorship of the New York Times isn't because we actually care that much about like the interest of a company like the New York Times, but because we care about citizens making informed decisions about how they vote, for example. But similarly, we should care about government censorship of health information because we care about patients and physicians making informed decisions about treatment. People have rights to know about the latest types of treatments that might perform prescribing practices or treatment decisions. Most importantly, patients. So patients have a right to know because a foundational principle of medical ethics is the doctrine of informed consent which says that patients have a moral right to access all information that a reasonable person would deem relevant to their decision-making, and that it's immoral for physicians to paternalistically withhold relevant information about a treatment or treatment alternatives. But that same reason 
for in favor of informed consent is also a reason that it would be a violation of people's fundamental right of medical autonomy for the government to censor uh, or paternalistically withhold information from patients. So this type of censorship, if it is justified by an appeal to the idea that patients are ill-equipped if they had information to make informed, competent decisions, is discordant or incompatible with the more general principle of respecting patients' rights to make informed medical decisions by accessing information that they deem relevant. But maybe you're not like a rights-first kind of person. That's fine. Uh, you should be. But um, maybe you think that the consequences are what we should be paying attention to. But even then, it's just not clear that the benefits of information um, are outweighed by whatever government interests they would have in favor of censorship. So consider first just uh, the idea that there's real cost to censoring off-label promotion. And here's just a few of them, which I could run through. First, with existing prescription requirements, uh, which include direct-to-consumer marketing, um, there's already some evidence that having direct-to-consumer drug marketing encourages patients to see physicians, which can have other health benefits. So for example, 27% of Americans have at some point in time been prompted to make appointments with their physician because they saw an advertisement. Though there are concerns about disease monitoring, for example, uh, and patients might not know they have a treatable condition, uh, for example. So sometimes if you expand the scope of marketing, it could inform people out there that they have conditions that are treatable that they didn't even know about. So there could be a benefit to patients just by being exposed to the knowledge that there's a treatable condition that they have. Uh, direct consumer marketing also has been found to destigmatize certain conditions, such as like mental health conditions, um, and prompt people to seek treatment in that way. And drug marketing can promote treatment compliance, according to the study, a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, because it reminds people who have prescription medicines to kind of be more on it with regards to managing their treatment and their drug therapy. Uh, all of these benefits of direct-to-consumer marketing, which we currently have, are also benefits we could expect to have if direct-to-consumer marketing were expanded to off-label. So people could learn about new potential therapies for treatments that they didn't know were treatable, or for conditions that they didn't know were treatable. There's also like mixed evidence on cost savings, and I could talk about that a little bit more later, but here's one theoretical reason to think that there could be more cost savings than you would think, which is that if marketing were allowed, then manufacturers wouldn't have incentives to develop drugs that could compete with existing profitable drugs and to market them, which could potentially drive down prices. On the other hand, if marketing increases demand, it could increase prices. This is really controversial. Aaron Kesselheim is this bioethicist guy who objects to the cost saving hypothesis because he's like, no, it would make higher healthcare costs because then physicians would prescribe newer, more expensive drugs. But that seems like a problem with like reimbursement rates or insurance. That's not a problem with off-label marketing per se. It's a prob problem with how health reimbursement costs, I think. Uh, on the other hand, there's real harms to a policy which is censoring people in these ways. So in addition to the harms that Howard was talking about, marketing restrictions can also threaten the public health uh, and undermine trust. So. Back in the 80s, there was a study of um, off-label marketing delays. So um, Dale Geringer gives a study of beta blockers. So beta blockers, they find out that this approved therapy could be preventative for second heart attacks. Great. Let's get the word out there that like we put people on beta blockers, it'll prevent second heart attacks. Nope, can't get the word out there until it's approved by the FDA to be marketed for that kind of condition. Um, that means there's a delay uh, in the amount of time that the manufacturer can get the word out there about the potential benefits of this therapy in preventing second heart attacks. During that delay, that marketing delay, on some estimates, about 4,000 second heart attacks occurred 
that were fatal to the patients uh, that could have counterfactually been pre prevented by that um, therapy treatment. That's just an estimate. That's only one example. But that's just a theoretical example as well. That's just a, a, an illustration of the theoretical point, which is that uh, ignorance can be deadly to people. And lacking information about uh, effective therapeutics could harm people. Um, now, I acknowledge that like the consequences, it could go either way. But unless there is a clear public health risk, there should be a presumption against government censorship. So whatever you think about the consequentialist case, you should be worried about government censorship in these cases. Um, because if there is weak evidence in favor of off-label promotion and weak evidence against off-label promotion, the presumption should be that manufacturers are very cautious about engaging in off-label promotion but that the government is also very cautious about censoring off-label promotion, given the uncertainty about the consequences either way. But there's also a deeper political question, which is, does the government have the moral authority to be censoring companies, manufacturers, representatives in this way? No, they do not. So I think Christina will talk about this a little bit more, but I don't think that they have the constitutional authority. In the US, restrictions on commercial speech must pass a test which requires that they support a government Substantial, they directly support a substantial government interest, which is narrowly tailored to advance that interest. But the restrictions don't clearly substantially support a government interest because the public health benefits of restrictions on off-label marketing are very unclear, nor are they narrowly ta tailored to only limit the kind of off-label promotion that would potentially undermine public health. And it's not even clear that they even have the statutory authority for what it's worth um, to be doing this. Uh, and also, there are alternatives. There are alternative ways that the government could promote safe prescribing and could deter uh, people um, from using off-label drugs in a dangerous way. For example, they could educate people about appropriate use. They could publish guidance serving in an advisory capacity. They could certify drugs based on levels of credence for their efficacy. Insurers and people who provide subsidies could use payment subsidies to incentivize safe off-label use, even with, with off-label marketing, or you could change liability standards to promote safe off-label use. Um, so just to close, I just want to think about um, the kind of broader context. Because sometimes people will say like, oh, but this is a common objection. Uh, then people will go to their doctors. If we have off-label marketing for any kind of condition, it'll just put too many people in the doctor's office. But uh, given that physicians already are empowered to act as gatekeepers between people, and also given substantial evidence that off-label prescribing is as effective as on-label prescribing, and physicians already have a moral duty to inform their patients about all relevant treatment options as it is at the point of care, it doesn't seem like off-label marketing would need to change much about the physician-patient relationship unless that relationship is already deficient because physicians are unethically withholding information. If anything, it may promote patients' medical literacy and lead to more informed decision-making. If physicians are entrusted as it is to stand as gatekeepers between patients and their care, then why are they also not trusted to stand as gatekeepers between more informed patients who are aware of off-label uses? More generally, elsewhere, I've argued against efficacy testing requirements being prohibitive. So some people will say, the whole point of all efficacy testing requirements is that it provides guidance for what could be labeled, uh, marketed off-label versus on-label. But think about how costly efficacy testing requirements are. 
while the drug is being approved for efficacy or a device is being approved as effective, people suffer and die waiting for access to that therapy potentially. And also these costly long-term testing requirements deter innovation. So people also suffer for a lack of the new drugs that could have been created were it not for these burdensome regulations. So to the extent that allowing for off-label marketing would undermine the existing justification for efficacy requirement, all of the good is on my view, um, because we should rethink efficacy testing more generally given the pervasive practice of off-label prescribing. So I think that patients should already have access to drugs that haven't been tested for efficacy. Um, more generally, this will democratize patient-driven drug development. So right now, patients can already have access to information about off-label uses of drugs, but only patients who have high rates of medical literacy, who are well-connected, people who know doctors, people who are plugged into these communities, like patients like me, enabling off-label marketing will make it so that people have more equal access to all of the potential uses of different therapeutics. Now, there are some objections. Some people worry about patients being manipulated. But if this were a valid concern, that people were potentially going to be manipulated, then we should also rethink direct-to-consumer marketing. But we should not rethink direct-to-consumer marketing uh, because it has substantial public health benefits and it's also protected within our speech tradition in the United States. And therefore, it's not a valid concern that we should be worried about manipulative marketing for off-label marketing. Similarly, people might worry about healthcare costs. But if the concern is that people would request more treatment, when else is it permissible to limit a person's freedom on the grounds that they may subsequently just exercise that freedom in an attempt to improve their own health? In any case, we could have other ways to keep down healthcare costs that don't require government censorship of messages that the government dislikes. You might worry about other kinds of externalities, like legitimacy, undermining the legitimacy of experts in the FDA. But the FDA are already not experts about whether a particular treatment is right for a patient. The patient is the expert about whether a treatment is right for her. And that's why every patient ultimately has the moral authority to make their own treatment decisions. Speech restrictions only limit the true expert's ability to develop their own expertise about, their, about what's right from them by preventing patients from accessing all relevant information about treatment. So to sum up, off-label marketing restrictions cannot be morally justified when we consider the political context, the political ethics of it, individual rights, or the large-scale consequences. Off-label speech is truthful, and it advocates for legal, legal conduct, and in no other circumstances would we accept this kind of state censor censorship. Health choices continue to be held to unjustifiable double standards that are shaped by an offensive and paternalistic ideology. Censorship violates people's rights, and there's insufficient ev evidence of their benefits, and also an insufficient legal basis to warrant this kind of censorship. So we should do away with it and allow off-label marketing in the United States. All right. Well, I fully appreciate the fact that you are now being asked to listen to an attorney, and I am standing between you and lunch. <laughs> so, uh, but I promise you, although we're going to talk about case law and we're going to talk about courts, it's going to be really fun. So fun that you're going to forget about the fact that we have lunch after this presentation. Um, 
I want to start with a patient's story. Uh, this is a true story about a woman named Laura. Now, Laura had colorectal cancer, and she was not responding to a lot of the traditional treatments that were out there, and her doctor was kind of on his last hope. But he knew about a treatment that was approved by the FDA for another kind of cancer. And there were lots of studies out there and lots of indications to show, in fact, that the manufacturer of the treatment itself agreed that this treatment could be helpful for Laura. So the doctor recommended the treatment to Laura. Laura went through all of the risks and benefits and made the decision that she wanted to try the treatment. She wanted to try to save her life. And this was perfectly legal. It was legal for the doctor to offer this treatment. It was legal for Laura to accept this treatment. And so they went to move forward with the treatment and the insurance company denied payment, they denied coverage. And for many people in the United States, of course, that because of the way our system is set up, that ultimately means that you're not going to get the treatment. And why did the insurance company deny the, the treatment, deny the coverage? Well, it was because the insurance company didn't really understand that this type of treatment could be very beneficial to Laura. In fact, as her doctor believed, it was her best shot at recovering, and it had a very good chance of helping her. The reason the insurance company didn't know that, and had they known it, they probably would have made a different decision on coverage, is because the manufacturer of that treatment was prohibited by law from sharing truthful information about that treatment with the insurance carrier. And so that information wasn't shared, the insurance company didn't know, and they denied coverage. And I think this is an important story because a lot of times, you know, we've talked already in this conversation about how these prohibitions affect companies and, you know, and how they affect doctors and their ability to make decisions. But it goes to the actual core of the patient issue. When you think about this actually affects who ultimately gets the treatment because it affects insurers as well. It affects payments. Laura could have gotten that treatment very simply if we were just allowed to share truthful information about how that treatment could help her. And this really illustrates the paradox we have here, the oddity in the law, that while the treatment is legal and the prescribing for off-label use is legal, federal law often prohibits the truthful, non-misleading information going from the manufacturer to the doctor or to the patient or to the, ins excuse me, the insurance company. Even though if you think about it, it's bizarre because the manufacturer itself is oftentimes the one that has the most information about their product, right? I ha I'm the one who created the product. I'm continuously testing it. Testing never stops. The learning experience never stops. We have real world data out there of patients using treatments and we're getting all of this information and the manufacturer has that information, but they are prohibited. They are under this gag rule. They cannot share that information. And it's very odd also because in this country, we typically respect the sharing of truthful speech. We might outlaw conduct because we recognize that conduct can sometimes be harmful, but information itself, especially truthful, not misleading information, is not harmful in and of itself. It's information. It empowers people to be able to make decisions. And yet here we have this paradox where we are outlawing, we are allowing conduct, but we are outlawing speech about that conduct speech that could have very real consequences for people, patients, doctors, uh, insurance companies, uh, and innovation. Well, I, I think it's important to take a step back for a moment and think about commercial speech. And you've heard a little bit about uh, commercial speech and how it's treated differently in the United States. If you pull out your constitution, which I'm sure you all have mm -hmm. on you, and you look at the First Amendment, it's very simple, it's very plain, and it makes no distinction between different kinds of speech, right? It says that 
freedom of speech is protected. And yet, starting in roughly the progressive era, courts started distinguishing between different kinds of speech. They put commercial speech into a different category, and they said it's deserving of lesser protection. And the reason that the progressive era courts started to do this is because they really viewed speech very differently than our founders did. Our founders viewed speech as an individual right that is a good in and of itself, that because we are, as individuals have rights, we own our bodies, we own ourselves, we own our ideas, we're able to share them, and we should be able to share them so long as we're not being fraudulent or misleading. Speech is valuable to the speaker, and the speaker has a right to share his or her message. But as we moved into the progressive era, courts started and scholars started looking at rights and treating them as good only insofar as they're beneficial to society as a whole. So speech is not so much valuable to the speaker as it is to society, and if society or the government deems that speech is not helpful to society or not helpful to the listener, then we ought to go ahead and censor it. And that's really where you see this justification for treating commercial speech as somehow a lesser uh, a, a standard, as not as valuable um, as other types of speech, such as political speech. This is really ironic, though, when you think about it in the context of off-label communications, because the people that we're purporting to help, right, the, the government says we've got to outlaw these communications because it's in the good of society, are actually the people that are harmed most by these types of prohibitions. And that is not at all to undermine what people like Howard go through every single day. They are clearly harmed. The speaker is harmed here. But it's the individuals who are no longer empowered to be able to make their own decisions. They don't have the information that they need to be able to decide and weigh the costs and benefits of taking a treatment. And so it's society that we're ultimately harming in the name of helping society. And of course, as Jessica also mentioned, it's really difficult practically to draw a distinction between what is commercial and what is non-commercial speech. The newspaper example is a great one. Uh, you know, newspapers, editorial boards oftentimes endorse candidates, right? They're, they're, that is as political as it can get. Of course, the reason they do that is because they want to sell papers and they have a commercial motive for speaking. So is it commercial speech, and in which case it doesn't deserve very much protection? Or is it political speech, in which case it deserves the utmost protection? When we draw these fuzzy lines, you know, as, as an esoteric matter, that's very difficult to do. But when we're talking about matters of life and death and patient well-being, um, drawing these fuzzy lines in the sand could actually result in people losing their lives and certainly losing their dignity to be able to make decisions for themselves. Nevertheless, even though this commercial, non-commercial oddity in the law, this distinction persists today, many scholars and judges and Supreme Court justices have, have called this distinction into question. And a number of recent decisions over the past decade have reaffirmed that even though we are still going to treat commercial speech differently, commercial speech, speech for a commercial or financial motive, is still protected in this country. And government is still restricted about how um, it can regulate commercial speech speech and how and government still is not supposed to value speech differently based on the speaker or based on the message. And so commercial speech is protected today. And in fact, when we look at off-label speech and off-label speech uh, questions that have been considered by the courts, most of the courts that have heard challenges to this prohibition on off-label speech have actually come out on the side of speech. They have protected the speech. They have agreed that the FDA's restrictions on off-label speech are unconstitutional. And so it's really odd when you survey those cases 
you know, one might wonder, well, why is it that today in 2018 we still have these prohibitions? Why is it that we're hearing cases like Howard's persisting when, in fact, the courts seem to be on our side on this issue, even though we have this commercial, non-commercial speech distinction in the law? And that, I think, is a very interesting question. And the answer to that question is the government's behavior in dealing with these cases. As Howard has laid out, the government is all too happy to go after CEOs, uh, pharmaceutical representatives and the like for engaging in truthful off-label speech. But when those cases get to the court and they don't so much go uh, the, the government's way, the FDA has engaged uh, in a variety of behaviors that will either moot cases uh, or they'll settle cases behind the scenes. Ultimately, they have stopped the high courts from setting really valuable precedent here. And so it's made, it's made it very difficult for us to get any kind of clarity on what the law should be and the fact that these prohibitions on speech are actually unconstitutional. So first, um, there's a case back in uh, 2000. The Washington Legal Foundation brought this case. They were challenging these FDA guidelines that actually regulated the way that companies could share information in the form of textbooks or in continuing medical education classes. Doctors and other medical professionals are required by law to continue to get education. And what better way for them to do so and fulfill those requirements by learning about new information uh, for uses for lawful treatment of, uh, of drugs. And so the pharmaceutical companies, again, the ones that, that actually have the most information, the most cutting edge information about these treatments, wanted to be able to put this information in textbooks and share it in continuing medical education courses. And the FDA had guidelines that strictly regulated uh, and prohibited a company's ability to do that. So the Washington Legal Foundation sued. The case went up to the DC Circuit and the DC Circuit said, yeah, this is unconstitutional. This is truthful information. Nobody here is arguing that this information is misleading or false in any way. This is data-driven scientific information, and it's good for you to be able to share that with medical professionals. So what did the FDA do? Did it appeal that decision to the United States Supreme Court? No, the FDA backpedaled and said, well, you know, actually our guidelines, we are going to read them a little bit differently now. We're not going to read them to actually prohibit the type of speech that you said is lawful. And by doing so, they mooted the case. That ruling that the D.C. Circuit made, that ruling never got visited by the United States Supreme Court because essentially the FDA changed the facts of the case and stopped that decision from controlling. So again, we're left without any kind of clear guidance. But in 2012, we had a case uh, that many of you may be familiar with if you follow this issue, United States versus Coronia. In that case, pharmaceutical sales representatives were targeted by the federal government for engaging in off-label speech. Uh, and again, the importance of this case is that nobody was challenging whether or not this speech was truthful, whether or not it was misleading. Everybody agreed that the information that these phar pharmaceutical representatives were sharing was lawful or was a truthful, not misleading speech. But nevertheless, the FDA said it's illegal because you're communicating about off-label uses. You're using that to try to sell your product. And so this case made its way up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court said, yeah, this is illegal for the FDA to do this. This is unconstitutional. Um, the court said you, know, you can't prosecute people for speech, especially when that speech is truthful, it's not misleading, and the underlying conduct is lawful. If the conduct is lawful and we're going to allow physicians to treat using these treatments, you ought to be able to talk about it. 
And that was a decision that everybody in this area really kept their eyes on because we thought once and for all, this might be the decision to clarify that this regulation, that this gag rule is in fact unconstitutional. And what happened? The FDA literally ignored the ruling. They even put out a press release stating that they found the Coronia decision inconsequential, that it would not change the way that the FDA prosecutes speech going forward. This is a court of appeals decision in federal court of appeals. But that, that would not change the way that the FDA prosecuted speech, and here's why. See, the court was talking about the fact that the FDA cannot prosecute speech. That violates the First Amendment. And the FDA said, no, 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 we're not prosecuting speech. We're simply using speech as evidence of the crime of misbranding. Now, this is a distinction that only a lawyer can love. And actually, I'm a lawyer, and I don't love it so much. But, but think about that. What is misbranding, if not speech? Branding is speech, right? It's me talking about my product or offering information about my product. But the FDA nevertheless found that to be a significant distinction and, and declared openly that it would go ahead, it would continue to go ahead and prosecute speech, uh, or rather use speech as evidence of the crime of misbranding as it had done so before. And this brings us to 2015, uh, a case uh, uh, under the company, uh, the company uh, Amarin. Amarin has a fish oil drug. And I am not a scientist or a medical professional, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of the types of things that this drug does or is it intended to treat. But let's keep it very basic and just say that this particular fish oil, oil drug was FDA approved to treat people that have severe triglyceride levels. Now, the company thought that, well, if this drug was so effective for people with severe triglyceride levels, it would probably work for people that had levels that were simply high or that were lower than, than the severe levels. And so Amarin was actually going through and doing all of the studies and was working their way toward getting final approval to be able to market for a different kind of triglyceride level. But the results were st statistically significant in the meantime. They had all this really good data and they wanted to be able to help patients and share that with doctors and say, hey, look, this fish oil is actually helpful for a, a totally different uh, subset of patients. And they wanted to get that information out there and share it in the meantime. So they went to the FDA and they said, can we share this information that is scientifically proven in the meantime so that people can be helped while we're waiting for final approval to market? And the FDA sent this to an advisory committee, and the advisory committee looked at it and said, no, this would be off-label marketing, and that would be illegal under the current law. And so Amarin sued. They went to court, and they sued so that they could be able to share the results of their scientific study uh, with the medical community, including disclaimers, by the way. Amarin said that they would include very clear disclaimers that said these are not FDA-approved statements, we haven't gotten final approval for this yet, but just so that they could put that information out there so that doctors not only would know that they could use these treatments for other uses, but they would know how to as well, right? It's not just a matter of knowing that you can treat other ailments with a particular uh, treatment, but it's also knowing what dosages might be effective or what side effects might be out there. They wanted to get this information out there so medical professionals and patients could make informed decisions. And this went to the district court in New York, federal district court, and the judge there issued a preliminary injunction uh, against the FDA, essentially saying that that Amarin ought to be allowed to share this truthful, not misleading information. Again, no argument there that, that it was truthful, not misleading with the medical community. Uh, and they said, look, the Coronia decision is not, it doesn't make sense the way the FDA is reading that decision, right? 
it applies to all truthful and not misleading promotional speech. We need to be able to trust doctors to understand this information and share it with their patients. And again, patients have to be able to be fully informed so they can weigh the costs and benefits and make their own treatment decisions. And so again, this looked like we were finally going to have a decision in federal court that would tell us once and for all that this prohibition on off-label speech is unconstitutional. And what did the FDA do this time? It settled the case. See, it's very difficult to win a preliminary injunction. I should know, I see the government for a living. It's very hard to go into court and tell a judge, hey, stop the government from doing this illegal thing immediately. Judges are usually uh, hesitant to do that. And here, the company won, right? The judge said, this is just so obviously unconstitutional. We think you're going to win once you take your case to trial. So we're gonna stop the government from, from this gag, using this gag rule in the meantime. And the FDA looked at that and said, well, we don't, again, we don't want to lose this case. We don't want to set this precedent. So they settled with the company. And of course, you can understand why most companies would take that type of offer. Howard was explaining exactly why that would be. Why would a company spend millions and millions of dollars and years fighting the FDA, which by the way, has an infinite number of resources because it's digging into all of your pockets to sustain its lawsuits. Why would a company do that when the FDA is offering them an out, especially an out so good as in the Ameren case where the FDA essentially was allowing Ameren to market as it wanted to and even told Ameren that it would fast track additional marketing requests in the future so that it could continue to market its products. Well, that's a great deal for Ameren, but not so great for the rest of us in the medical or legal community that needs some sort of clarification as to what we can do in the future. I bring these cases up, and of course, the, the, the fact that we have these constant mooting and settling of cases is the reason that the FDA continues to prosecute people like Howard even today. Mooting and settling these cases mean that we have absolutely no clear guidelines, and companies are very afraid as a result to put information out there, and as we've discussed, this harms doctors, this harms payers, this ultimately harms patients. Sadly, Congress hasn't really uh, taken up this cause. There's been proposals in the past to do something to clarify uh, the FDA's power here, or at least to stop it, to put an end to this gag rule. And those proposals, frankly, don't really go anywhere. Uh, recently, in the last days of the Obama administration, there was an FDA rule change proposal that was in an attempt to clarify uh, this gag order and, and exactly where the FDA would step in and, and prosecute. Uh, that rule basically didn't do a whole lot. It did not really under, uh, it didn't really resolve the free speech issue that was underlying everything we're talking about today. So it was a very inconsequential rule change that wouldn't have actually solved the problem. And still, it got delayed and delayed and delayed. And now over a year later, the FDA has just in the last month announced that it's going to infinitely delay uh, the final, uh, finalizing that rule and continue to study the issue. Even though courts have been studying this issue for quite some time, and they've all pretty much come out on the same side that, hey, this, this gag order actually violates the First Amendment. And so we have no motion uh, in Washington, DC. But I'm happy to result that hope is not lost, because as a result of these delays and as a result of the federal inaction, the states are actually stepping up to do something to protect free speech. Now, you might start to wonder, well, what can the states actually do here, right? This is a federal rule. This is a federal law. This is the FDA. How can the states step in and get involved? Aren't they preempted by these federal rules? And typically, when the FDA issues a rule or when Congress issues uh, passes a law, those do preempt 
state, uh, conflicting state laws. But see, our founders set up this system of federalism, right? They didn't just give us a federal constitution, they also gave us all of the state constitutions. And they said that the federal constitution just provides a floor for the protection of our rights, not a ceiling. And in fact, when the federal government fails to protect our rights, the states not only can step in to protect our rights, but I argue ought to step in to protect the rights of their citizens. A federal law that is unconstitutional can never supersede a conflicting state law, especially if that state law is in place to protect the rights of its citizens. This is how our founders wanted our federalist system to work. And of course, courts have said time and time again that the states are the primary guarantors of health and safety, um, that the regulation of the medical profession itself is a state role. The FDA, keep in mind, has no legal authority to actually regulate the practice of medicine. The FDA's job is to approve drugs for final sale in interstate commerce. And back when the FDA was founded, really what it was focused on is empowering people and making sure they had the information they needed to be able to make choices. But the FDA is not a regulator of the practice of medicine. The states are. And so again, all the more reason why the states can and should step up to protect these speech rights. And that's exactly what's happening. Uh, at the Goldwater Institute, we took a look at this issue. We took a look at where the federal courts were going on this. And we drafted a model law that we call the Free Speech and Medicine Act. It's a very, very simple law. It's not a thousand pages long. It's, I can't stand up next to it and show you stacked up how high the regulations are. It's very simple. It just says, look, within the state, you have a right to share truthful information about lawful treatments. The end, very, very simple law. It's one page. States can pass these laws to protect the free exchange of off-label information. And in fact, states are doing so. In Arizona last year, Arizona became the first state to pass such a law. And I am proud to say that, that law passed unanimously in the Arizona legislature and was signed into law by the governor. These days, it's hard to get even one party to agree on anything in healthcare, much less every single member of both political parties within a state to do so. And that law passed unanimously, was signed into law by the governor, and has since gone into effect in Arizona. Other states are taking up this cause. Uh, Colorado and Missouri just started their legislative sessions, and they both introduced uh, bills like the Free Speech and Medicine Act to protect off-label speech within their states. And we expect other states to follow suit very soon. So I would just close by saying that, you know, there, this is one of those issues that nobody really thinks about until they are put into a situation where their actual lives are at risk um, because they don't have the type of information that they need to be able to make important decisions. I think that it's also one of those issues where, although the law is well-intentioned, and I truly believe that the law was put into place, this, this prohibition on off-label um, communication was put into place to protect patients and, and, to, and to keep them from making bad decisions. In fact, the opposite is true. And in fact, what we're doing is crippling people's ability to make decisions for themselves. We're not empowering patients, but we are harming them. And it's very, very good to see that the states are taking action here. I hope every single state passes the Free Speech and Medicine Act. And I hope Congress and the FDA is listening, listening to the stories of people like Howard, listening to the ethics and the moral consequences of such prohibitions like Jessica mentioned, and listening to the states, listening to the grassroots patient-centric movement in the states to protect free speech and medicine once and for all. And with that, I really appreciate you all coming out in this drizzly cold weather, and, uh, and we look forward to your questions.
Okay, we will be taking uh, questions. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have a question, uh, to raise your hand, uh, wait for the microphone to come to you, uh, make sure it is a question and not a soliloquy. And uh, also, please identify yourself. Uh, before we get to audience questions, so I had a couple questions for, uh, uh, for our speakers. Um, first, uh, for Howard, you know, here at the Cato Institute, uh, we have a, a project on criminal justice. It focuses on uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct. And also how the, just the proliferation of laws, the fact that everything is legal nowadays, uh, and uh, how we appear to have criminalized everything really feeds that kind of misconduct because it gives uh, police and prosecutors so much leverage over, over really every, every citizen um, and how it threatens freedoms across the board. So one thing that stuck out to me uh, in, in your remarks was uh, the story of Beth Matthews, one of your employees. Right. And uh, so what I wanted to ask is, you know, what were the rights and privileges of her natural born son, as uh, the quote stated, that, that the prosecutors were threatening? What were they threatening to do to Beth Matthews' well, that's, son? Well, that's the exact, that's the scary part of it. She didn't know. It was just so oddly specific because she has one adopted son and one naturally born son that they were telling her that they know everything about her and they can do anything they want to her. And when someone is sitting there, especially in a grand jury where your lawyer is not present, they can ask any question, and all you can do is walk out and come back in and answer it. Or when they're sitting down and threatening you, you're going to indict you for perjury or obstruction of justice if you don't say this, you're going to agree with whatever the U.S. attorney says. And so when they threaten you in that way, that's, it's a distortion of justice, and that's, that's a problem. I mean, it, it, this is an issue, as Christine said, it's, it's about freedom and lives, lives of the patients because they're not getting the information they need, and freedom of people who are selling those devices and people who manage those salespeople because we can get thrown in prison for it. Over what? Over truthful, non-misleading speech. And then they're threatening the people's children over what... It, the employees that came out of the grand jury session, then in my, they were just so astonished that this was even a criminal investigation, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't get their mind around it. And so that's, that's the problem. Prosecutors have incredible power in America, that's a given, but giving them this kind of power on such a bizarre law that nobody understands, it's, it's, it's almost indefensible. Okay, a uh, question for Jessica. So not all new drugs or even old drugs uh, or new uses for existing drugs are beneficial, some harm patients. Uh, so if we ban off-label speech, what sorts of protections will exist uh, for patients? What, uh, what will protect patients from those off-label uses that do prove harmful and may not prove harmful until many patients have used them? Because health, health and medicine are complex. Sometimes we need large trials in order to identify benefits and harms. Um, and so how is, if off-label speech is completely free and unfettered, what would deal with the public good problem involved in generating that sort of information so that we can find out what is truly beneficial, what is, uh, what is going to harm patients? So the first thing to notice is that even if you're concerned about negative public health effects of off-label marketing, there's no principled way to rule out off-label marketing without also ruling out a whole bunch of other currently legal and morally permissible uh, practices in health. So like direct-to-consumer marketing, we have already. And like that also could in some ways prompt people to make medical decisions in virtue of being exposed to marketing that are not in their decision, are not in their medical interest. Off-label prescribing, which there's strong evidence right now that off-label prescribing is as effective and safe as on-label prescribing, but we allow off-label prescribing. So like, given that we have direct-to-consumer marketing legal and also off-label prescribing, putting them together, I don't see the case for why the, the conjunction of those two things 
A, will lead to some kind of doomsday scenario, and B, should be held to some kind of different standard than these other two permissible practices. But say that it would. Say that, like, oh, there's going to be lots of off-label marketing, and then people are going to make decisions that are not in their medical interest. If people are making decisions in their medical, no, they're not in their medical interest, two things are going on. The first thing that might be going on is that they lack um, adequate information. And then the question is, is the solution to people lacking adequate information or making ill-informed decisions censorship, or is it more speech? Facilitating um, patient literacy and giving patients access to the resources, such as doctors or pharmacists or expert advice, to make decisions that are in their medical interest. The second thing that might be going on is that people only think that health is one of many values. And so some people might use pharmaceuticals to advance their overall interest, even if it isn't in their medical interest. And I think that we should be okay with that because the purpose of healthcare isn't necessarily to promote people's medical interest, it's to promote people's well-being as and their life as a whole. And so people might make treatment decisions that their physicians, that the government, that other people in their lives disagree with, but it's still their decision to make. And so at some point, you just have to respect the choices that people make as long as they were informed and competent when making them. And so the answer to uh, patients being ill-informed isn't censorship. That only perpetuates the learned helplessness and paternalism of the current system. And the answer to patients being informed, nevertheless making decisions that we would disagree with or judge that aren't in their medical interest, is to just respect those decisions because medical autonomy is a fundamental principle that we should all be committed to in healthcare. Okay. Uh, if we have any questions, go ahead and raise your hand. Again, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Um, you, sir, on the aisle here, how about you first? And then do we have two microphones or just one? All right. And then uh, on the aisle here, second, if you could go ahead and give the microphones so he can start. Um, um, Jacqueline down here, please. Hi, Nick Florker with Inside Health Policy. Uh, I actually have two questions. So the first one is uh, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has said that FDA needs a new approach uh, towards off-label. And he cited current jurisprudence and said it doesn't cut in FDA's favor. So I guess I'm wondering, with that public sign that FDA is rethinking their approach, why doesn't that uh, alleviate your concerns? Uh, and the second question, I just want to make sure I understand, because a lot of the folks in, in this policy arena draw a distinction between communication with sophisticated parties like doctors and communication directly to consumers. Um, and Jessica, it seems like you're advocating that there should be no restrictions on both. Uh, and I want to make sure the rest of the folks in the panel feel the same way. Well, uh, thank you for your question. I, I, I can't actually see you, but I appreciate <laughs> <laughs> But I can hear you, and I Does appreciate exist. your question. Yeah. Um, but thank you. You know, I will say uh, that I am very um, enthused to hear Commissioner Gottlieb speak about the current FDA approach and the fact that the FDA needs a new approach to regulating off-label communications. I hope um, that he's going to think very seriously about that issue and that his recognition that the law is certainly has not been on the side of the FDA will result in a policy that will allow people to speak freely about truthful information and that will not criminalize truthful, uh, the exchange of truthful information. The devil's going to be in the details. Um, I think a lot of well-intentioned reforms 
you know, it's not just up to uh, Commissioner Gottlieb, of course, there's going to be other parties involved, there may be Congress involved in passing a law, and I think well-intentioned reforms sometimes make their way through the political process and come out even more confusing um, than they initially started to be, uh, or may come out uh, as the, the previous reform that was proposed as something that's actually not really going to solve the problem. So the devil will be in the details. Um, I hope that uh, Commissioner Gottlieb's statements are, uh, are you know, a, a sign of things to come. But I think in the meantime, it's really important, um, you know, every single day that we delay reforming these laws is a day that patients and their doctors and their insurance companies are without vital information that could help people, that could alleviate pain, and that could save lives. And so make no mistake, although I appreciate the FDA's recent comments, these reforms need to happen now. And that's why I think we're seeing this movement in the states, because people are frankly tired of waiting. They're tired of decades of court decisions that tell the FDA that this conduct is illegal, and yet it still persists. Uh, as to your question, your second question about whether we would draw the line between uh, communications directly to patients uh, or to uh, doctors and payers, uh, frankly, the Constitution doesn't draw that line and neither should our law, right? Inf information, so long as it's truthful, not misleading, should be able to be disseminated to whomever um, wants to be a willing recipient of that. And patients these days are much more sophisticated and informed thanks to the internet than they ever were before. Patients do their research. Um, there's also a lot of bad information that's out there that is completely escaping the regulation of the FDA. So why not give them scientific, truthful, information uh, and arm them with that as well. Uh, patients still have to go to their doctors to get treatment. And so they can, you know, they're still going to be able to talk with their doctors about this information. And again, as Jessica has mentioned a couple of times, at the end of the day, we're not really talking about, this is not a scientific question. This is a moral question because the information is out there for the patient to use and only the patient himself can decide what risks are worth it for him to engage in. Um, as far as the practicalities, I think it will be much easier to reform this law with regard to giving the information to doctors and payers than directly to consumers. Uh, the state of Arizona, when it passed its Free Speech and Medicine Act, actually just protected the communications between doctors um, and not, not communications directly to consumers. I, I think that it should go further, but certainly getting that information to doctors so that they can share this information um, and translate it to their patients is an important step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I just add, on the, the FDA has been saying they're going to imminently change off-label guidance for over a decade, and they haven't done it. And I, I like Scott Gottlieb. He was a big free speech proponent before he got in there, but he's got a lot of issues to address. During our case, one of the people within the Department of Justice said publicly that they were, they were upset by the shenanigans going on in the Second Circuit. That's the Ameren <laughs> case. And therefore, keep your eye out for U.S. versus vascular solutions. We chose this case. We went on the offensive. This is one where we can get this guy, Howard Root, thrown in prison. Now, since I won my case, they've actually barred me from talking at white-collar criminal conferences and uh, because they don't want to explain what they did and why they did it. Keep in mind, the FDA sets the rules. The Department of Justice enforces them. So in my case, it wasn't FDA-driven. It was Department of Justice. Until the FDA says, no, this is not a crime, it's going to continue to be gravitated toward by these relators and whistleblowers picked up by career-minded prosecutors, and they want to put CEOs in prison and guys like me sell their company and retire at the age of 56 as opposed to developing new medical devices. Jessica? Um, 
Pass? <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, he, he well, accurately stated my view, which is like, yeah, direct to consumer. Well, then let me, let, me, let me build on that question because, uh, you know, the FDA has a monopoly over the, at least the initial certification of safety and efficacy of new drugs and medical devices. In a regulatory system like that, and I would argue actually that the restrictions on off-label speech are an attempt to enforce that monopoly over not just initial indications, but extend it to a monopoly over the certification of secondary indications for drugs and medical devices. So in a, in a regulatory environment like that, where, where you have one government agency that is responsible um, uh, uh, for doing this, where the public holds that uh, government agency responsible, um, how can, or, or isn't it a problem uh, that will really swamp any good that a crusading commissioner of the FDA could do in terms of liberalizing off-label speech because the moment uh, an identifiable group of patients is harmed by some off-label use of a drug, God forbid it be children, uh, isn't the pendulum gonna swing back and instead of uh, all of us here pushing for more liberalization of off-label speech, the FDA will say, well, you know what, you know why this happened? It was because of those libertarians at the Goldwater Institute, the Cato Institute. <laughs> Uh, because they wanted uh, they, they wanted uh, so much unfettered speech that we were denied the tools we needed to save these lives. Um, are we going to get up and and uh, the FDA will be uh, dragged before Congress because there will be hearings and all that. Uh, so long as the FDA is, you know, holds that monopoly and we look to the FDA to protect us and only the FDA to protect us, then uh, aren't any changes that a crusading uh, commissioner uh, uh, can implement, aren't they going to be fleeting? Because eventually, uh, given the uncertainty involved in medicine, uh, the fact that a lot of medical treatments, like pretty much any pharmaceutical, will hurt someone, uh, isn't it the case that the, the pendulum will swing back and we will end up you know, basically right where we are, even in a worse place, just because that's what you get when you have monopolistic certification of safety and efficacy? I think that's an excellent question, Michael. And, and you know, the FDA is in a, a difficult position, I'll admit, because we have sort of, they, they're sort of having to rule based on the seen and the unseen consequences, right? Whenever the FDA approves a drug or a device for market uh, and it harms somebody, everybody sees the consequence of that. If somebody gets sick, if somebody dies, especially if it's a child, uh, everybody ex points the finger at the FDA and says, you messed up, you didn't do enough, uh, you didn't do a good enough job, you didn't get enough information, you let this thing get out to the public and look what it did. And so that makes the FDA a very risk-averse agency. They don't want to be responsible uh, for those types of consequences. And yet, Nobody sees the flip side. We have absolutely no idea how many countless people suffer and die every single year because treatments that could help them, that could ease their pain and suffering, uh, that, you know, that could save their lives are tied up in this bureaucratic tape, red tape, because we um, continue to insist on more and more and more information. And keep in mind, even the FDA recognizes this. Um, the FDA recognizes it doesn't have perfect information and that it's drawing basically an arbitrary line um, as to when we have enough information to put this type of, um, to put, approve these uh, treatments for market. And the FDA itself has pulled from the market sometimes decades after approving particular treatments because they've later had not efficacy concerns, but even safety concerns. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think it's a good question because I think when we put a lot of stock, when we give a lot of power to one government agency to make these decisions, when we put a lot of stock in those decisions, um, you end up with situations where, of course, the agency is going to be risk averse. Of course, it's going to want to use any example.
people out there um, of anything going wrong uh, as a reason to tighten its control and to tighten its grip, the public is going to want it to do that too. Even though these types of uh, reforms to allow people to take medicines that haven't been fully approved or to allow people to speak about truthful information are wildly popular and bipartisan, the FDA is still one of the most popular government agencies out there because people think that the FDA is keeping us safe and, and um, so, you know, it's a real problem. Um, and again, the FDA is not charged with regulating the practice of medicine. So I think it's really important that long-term we take a step back from the system that we have and that we realize that, as Jessica said, uh, the solution to fighting bad speech um, is with more speech. Get more information out there. Empower people to make their own choices and to be responsible for those choices. Okay, sir. I... Uh, my question is from K2. How did K2 allow somebody like Mr. Howard Root to come sit over here, libel, slander, libel, slander, everybody who has been against him in his case? I don't know uh, Howard. I don't know all of other ones that uh, he mentioned. But bringing somebody over here that uh, he claims that also he has spent $25 million on that, that it's not a regular person, it's somebody with a huge amount of money, to bring over here and libel slander everybody that uh, he didn't like. And uh, that, uh, that, that's my question from Cato. What do you got? The other issue is that this matter of the freedom of speech, unfortunately, freedom of speech is used these days uh, for every, including is used or abused for uh, approval or pornography. That, that, that's ridiculous because the attorneys are sit over there and go to the courts, and uh, it depends on who gave them more money. They defend whatever what you do, and the person does, whether uh, uh, killing somebody or uh, uh, drug companies or anybody. As soon as somebody gives the money, they just, just they, uh, uh, manipulate the Constitution and freedom of speech, everything to justify themselves. The only well, thing I agree with uh, Mr. Howard at the end is that he said that without uh, financial uh, uh, backing funds is better not to go to the <laughs> courts. That, that's why I, I agree with him. Well, um, uh, baked into your question for the Cato Institute, how can we allow Howard Root to come here and commit libel and slander is the presumption that he is committing libel and slander, which is actually an accusation against him. So why don't I let Howard uh, <laughs> respond to that? Well, I assume you're not a member of the Cato Institute because I don't see the libertarian part of that comment. But, um, you know, I wrote the book, and you can read the book. Uh, when I put up there what I do the slides, I take the court transcripts. So if you say it's, it's demeaning on the people who prosecuted me, it's their words demeaning them. I mean, that was actually what they did. They took grand jury transcripts from one witness, read it to another witness, and said, you have to change your testimony of this or you will be fired. Now, I find that appalling. I don't find it appalling that I said it. I find it appalling that the government did that. And the problem is this goes on all the time, but the people like me don't talk about it because people like you say, we're libeling and slandering, we're putting self-exposure, why don't you just move on? If I move on, the call, the email I get every single month from a guy going through the same thing who doesn't have $25 million has got no choice but to plead guilty and go to prison. I had a friend of mine get convicted on the same thing last year. I had a doctor friend of mine last week get convicted on something similar. This is going on throughout and you don't hear about it because the defendants can't talk about it. 
So that's, that's where I come out. I don't know what your personal experience is, why you think that the government's always right. I would think at your age you would know better than that, but, you know, that's your own personal opinion. Okay. Uh, uh, we need to move on to the next question, sir, on the aisle right there. Um, yeah, my name is, is Bert Ryan. I was a counsel for WLF in that first case, so yeah. you, that's just a disclaimer as to bias. I think that, you know, we have classic problem. You raised it about type 1, type 2 error. The FDA really started out to, as an agency to control false and misleading speech. And the, the theory being, well, people will just sell you anything and play on the weakness of the consumer. It was a scandal, sulfonamide, in the 1930s that gave them the power of pre-approval. And that was a safety-based. And then it was expanded. Well, there's a lot of quack medicine. doesn't do anything out there. So the FDA then moves into a, a command and control agency. If it's not allowed, it's forbidden. But they have that anomaly in the law that says, but they don't control the practice of medicine. So when we brought WLF, we were targeting this soft spot, which you're talking about, the anomaly that the medical profession can use a drug or device for anything they believe is, is proper. But theoretically, you can't market it for that, which is, you know, it's a soft spot. But the more fundamental question, I think you raised it, is the command and control aspect. What about drugs that are in experimental use or devices that have not yet been approved, so they are, quote, not lawfully in commerce? Uh, what do we want to do about those? Do we want to say, well, if people are informed and go to the, the manufacturer, they can buy those? Um, and I think from a, you know. Is that, is that your question? Yeah. So my question is, how do you relate this discussion, which I think is, easier because it's in that gray area where, where it's lawful but not spoken about to the more fundamental question, what do you do about the prior approval requirement as such? Are you prepared to accept the type 1 errors that it could arise from? So my view is that uh, the FDA has been given an, an impossible task. The FDA cannot regulate for safety and efficacy. And the reason that they can't is because safety and efficacy are normative judgments. They're not scientific judgments. They're judgments about whether it's worth it for a patient to use a drug. And there's no way that impersonal regulatory agencies that don't know people and their circumstances can effectively make that judgment better than the patient can. The patient is the expert about whether or not using a particular drug is worth it. So given that, my view is that all patients have rights of self-medication to make their own medical decisions, to weigh the risks and benefits of a drug, whether it's worth it. And that's true of investigational therapies as well as approved therapies. So instead of an approval model, which the FDA currently uses, I think that the FDA should move to a certificatory model where everybody has a path to access drugs regardless of FDA authorization, but FDA certification only serves an epistemic function to inform the practice of medicine. This is the original mandate of the FDA before they took on a prohibitive approach. And I also think it would in some ways liberate them from some of the democratic pushback and type one, type two error that Michael was talking about before, where uh, we shouldn't expect them to play this prohibitive role. We shouldn't expect this agency to be gatekeeping with respect to people's treatment decisions in these ways. And so when drug disasters or bad outcomes happen, we also shouldn't put that on the agency. It should be on um, either manufacturers, if there was some kind of fraud or adulteration or something, or, um, I mean, these these are tragic cases, but we shouldn't look to a regulatory agency to prevent them. This is the only area of uh, consumer and medical choice where people are expecting the government to play this protective choice in 
in constraining their own freedom and constraining their own medical autonomy for the sake of their own safety. And the FDA is just not equipped to make those decisions. Another reason the FDA is not equipped to make those decisions is just that they lack the capacity to do the necessary post-market surveillance and like continuing research to actually kind of maintain those decisions going forward. And so even if you think that the FDA were well-placed to make a judgment about safety and efficacy in principle, which I do not because I don't think that they are well-placed to be the experts about whether it's worth it for someone to use a drug. They just lack the capacity to effectively make the medical judgment, not even like the judgment about whether it's worth it for a patient as a whole. And so liberate the FDA and liberate patients at the same time, move to a certificatory system, and then ditch the efficacy testing requirement that causes unnecessary deaths and delays while people wait for drugs to be approved, and also deters innovation, which also kills people, because who knows what kind of cool drugs could have been invented, didn't cost billions of dollars in years to get a drug through this process. Get rid of it. <laughs> Final question in the middle, sir. I take the uh, FDA's taking a little bit of a hit here in the sense that uh, I would like to ask the panel how their reaction would be uh, to the fact that the FDA did not approve thalidomide and it was approved and used extensively in Europe with unbelievable profound negative things and how you would react to that sort of thing and or how the yeah. government should react to it. This is exactly what Christina was saying, though, about the... So it's very vivid to us when we see the letters from the parents of children who were killed by elixir sulfidamide or the thalidomide babies that were born in Europe. As an aside, the regulations, the efficacy testing requirements were, that were subsequently put in place in the 1962 uh, amendments uh, after the thalidomide disaster would not have prevented the thalidomide crisis because partly because of the way that the efficacy testing works right now and the on-label, off-label distinction... Uh, most drugs that are used by pregnant women are currently used off-label, nevertheless. And so, and they could have been prescribed. And so the remedy to the thalidomide crisis would not have actually prevented the thalidomide disaster as it happened. Nevertheless, um, yes, sometimes there are widespread adverse drug reactions. Sometimes there are bad consequences, medical outcomes of a lot of consumer choices. Does that mean that restricting people's medical autonomy and censoring lawful speech or truthful speech and that advocates for lawful conduct is the solution? Take an analogy to informed consent. Before 1912, patients didn't have legal rights against medical battery. So doctors would just like take out people's uteruses without asking. It was like horrible medical paternalism. Uh, Maybe today, in some cases, patients make refusal decisions where they refuse life-saving care, or people make decisions about their own bodies that are not in their medical interest. And it's a tragedy that it could have been prevented, but their own medical decision-making led to worse medical outcomes. Nevertheless, like, we wouldn't think, like, oh, look, there are these bad cases where people exercise their rights of informed consent, and it ends uh, badly for them. Uh, for example, people who refuse chemotherapy. So I guess we need to roll back informed consent. No, this is the price you pay of respecting people's medical autonomy. And it's worth it because regulators are not in a position to judge whether or not a medical decision is worth it for the patient on balance. So I would just, I just Sorry, add one little thing there. I mean, I'm, I'm not bashing the FDA. My case wasn't about the FDA. I believe in FDA approval, safe and effective. We could have that dispute all day <laughs> long. Uh, but here's the situation. 
Uh, none of my devices, 100 medical devices, were approved for use in pediatric cardiology. So uh, my sales rep calls me, can we go to the pediatric cardiology wing and show our products? Now, if I'm going to be off-label promotion, if it's off-label, say no. So no child born with congenital heart condition will get treated in the United States if we obey the off-label. So you can do examples on both sides. And the, we, have the, we have to separate the dispute about approval of the product as being safe and effective from whether on-label, off-label is a criminal distinction. And that's the thing I want to focus on today. That's the one we should all agree on. Let's get that done so it's not another 10 years of the FDA saying they're going to do something, other CEOs going to prison and getting tied up in this stuff, and then we still haven't done anything to solve it. And then I would just add that, you know, we've been talking a lot about freedom and absolutes, which I absolutely believe in, that people have a freedom to be able to make these decisions for themselves. But really on this, on these issues, and to your question, it's kind of a matter of equity um, before we even get to freedom, because the FDA system itself allows for people to take all sorts of quasi-medications, I would not argue that they are medications, but things like vitamins and all sorts of things that have absolutely no FDA approval, statements that are completely outside of the regulation of the FDA. People take those every single day. They make those decisions for themselves with the information's out there. Uh, again, off-label treatments, right? Perfectly legal. They have been approved by the FDA for safety, but not for efficacy at all. So uh, all we have is the information that's out there and our own uh, decision-making skills to decide whether or not we want to take those treatments. Only 3% of terminally ill patients make it into clinical trials. So when you talk about uh, treatments that have not yet gotten full FDA approval, 97% um, of terminally ill patients, just because they happen to be too sick or maybe too healthy, are denied access to treatments that could help them because they're only being tested on a small portion of the population. And so, again, you know, we're, there's, this isn't, our current system is not a system that ensures against all risks. It can't do so. It's not keeping all people safe. What it's doing is allowing a select few, people with money, people with connections, people who can travel to other countries where the regulations may be different, to access medications that could help them or save their lives. And it's at the same time barring other patients from being able to make those decisions and access those medications. So I think at, you know, at the end of the day, everything that's been saying up here is what we should remember, that's been said up here is what we should remember, that you know, this is really just a matter of fairness and efficacy and trusting people that are informed to be able to make their own decisions for themselves. And Howard raised uh, a, a point to which I, I'd want to respond. I think it's a very defensible position to say that uh, I, you know, I want the FDA to be there to certify safety and efficacy uh, initial indications, but I also want free speech. I don't think we should have to sacrifice free speech in order to get that. So I think that's a de very defensible position. I'm not sure it's a stable equilibrium, though, for some of the reasons that, that I have mentioned. The off-label market does sort of provide this, um, this uh, alternative form of certification where people can experiment with new uh, indications of drugs, gather information, even study them, um, but... Uh, and, and therefore rely on something other than the FDA's seal of approval before they prescribe or, or use these drugs. Uh, but I don't think that's a stable equilibrium because when you have uh, the, a monopolist like the FDA, as I mentioned before, when someone is harmed, when there are those type 1 errors associated with uh, an off-label use of a drug, then uh, people will naturally turn to the FDA. Why have you? Uh, why did you let this happen? Oh, we didn't have the tools because of the First Amendment or whatever, and so we need to restrict that. And so I think it'll always be this. Under this model, it'll be this constant struggle between uh, either preserving the FDA's monopoly or 
uh, preserving the First Amendment rights of patients and doctors. So, um, uh, and 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 then there are other you know consequences that we've we've talked about uh, and some that we we haven't yet of of this monopolistic model. One is that um, uh, as, as Jessica mentioned. Uh, as long as we keep this model, it's going to be very hard to get any post any decent post-marketing surveillance of, of drugs. And so we're going to end up with type 2 errors like we saw with Vioxx. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, I'm sorry, type 1 errors uh, like we saw uh, with Vioxx. Uh, and, and, and really, uh, I think for me, the fundamental uh, uh, problem uh, of, or, or the real problem with uh, the FDA's monopoly is highlighted best in the economic research that has shown or tried to measure how much does, you know, how does the FDA make the trade-off between type one and type two errors? And if you look at what economists have, have found uh, when they ask this question, a type one error being uh, someone got hurt because we didn't require enough testing first. A type two error being someone got hurt because we uh, require too much testing and a drug was delayed or never developed. And you would think that, you know, hopefully you, you, you would strike a balance where uh, you're respecting both types of patients equally, okay? So, you're, you are, so that you're, uh, if, if you try to reduce uh, type 1 errors, you're not increasing type 2 errors by even more. But what the economists have found is that when you have a, a, a is that the FDA actually regulates in a realm, you know, requires so much regulation that if they cut back on the amount of testing they require, yes, we, we might lose one life to, uh, for, uh, to, we might lose some lives to type one errors, but uh, for every additional life we lost to type one errors, we would save maybe 10 or 11 lives due to type two errors. And some studies have found that we wouldn't, uh, uh, we wouldn't lose any more lives to type one errors. Um, so uh, I, I think there's, uh, so I, I'm not sure that it's a, uh, uh, a stable equilibrium. And I think there is a way to, uh, to strike a better balance between type one and type two errors so that, so that yes, we'll, we'll still be getting both types of error. We'll still be losing lives because we haven't figured out how to uh, out abolish mortality and morbidity yet. But, uh, but I think there is an approach that uh, doesn't rely on monopolistic licensing. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into it now. With the, at, the, uh, at the Cato uh, Institute, we publish every couple of years this uh, handbook for policymakers. It includes a more detailed discussion of this, uh, 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 about how to, uh, if, how to have regulation of drugs that is uh, more respecting of patient autonomy and reduces both type 1 and type 2 errors more. Uh, but I just wanted to respond to... Uh, uh, to that point of Howard's and thank him and Christina and Jessica for coming. I think you guys have been a fantastic panel.